to welcome you out to another episode of the Lodestone Training and Consulting Podcast. I'm Jared Ross. Today joining me is Chris Johnson. And joining us is Flynn. Glad you're here, Flynn. Glad to be here. First, I want to remind you all of the Lodestone uh, Book Club. So we're picking a book every month, and at the end of the month, through WebEx, we're going to get together and we're going to discuss, talk about that book. Uh, and the way to sign up for it is you need to go to our website, sign up to the newsletter, and then we will be sending out WebEx links before those uh, end-of-month meetings for you to log in on and, and join us as we discuss whatever that monthly book is. And I'll tell you, my family is truly enjoying reading this month's book together, and the discussions that we're having are awesome. So even if you can't make the WebEx, still read the book. Absolutely. We've, we've put a lot of thought into picking these books. So Flynn, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, he is an integral part of Lodestone Training Consulting. He comes out for when he can and also for some of the select classes, and I'm really jazzed to, to have you here so we can get to know you a little bit better and uh, dropping some, some knowledge and wisdom on us. So welcome. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, my name's Flynn. I'm a police officer. Uh, I'm also an instructor at Lodestone, and uh, some may know me on social media as S-E-K underscore LTAC on Instagram. I got rid of Instagram. Well... Off my phone, at least. Yeah, I think that seems to be a, a common theme the past couple of weeks. I'm not sure when this one's this podcast is going to be going out, but so yeah. I might have it back by then. I'm yeah. having withdrawals. <laughs> <laughs> Our good friend Mossy Forge, he put up a big post uh, saying that the, the future is is offline, and I think he lasted about four days, and then now he's back. <laughs> uh, it's always tough. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your childhood. Uh, I grew up in a. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a rural area, but like rural suburban area. So, uh, and it was in the '90s. So, video games are kind of a thing, but my parents were dead set against it. It was either uh, if it was raining out, you could read a book. If it was sunny out, you better be outside or you were doing chores. And I would prefer to do that than do chores. So, yeah. I spent most of my childhood outside. Um, a major influence for me as a kid was, besides sports, was uh, the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts was huge for me. Uh, got me out in the woods, and as a kid, I was always reading about Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, Kit Carson, all the all the frontiersmen. And so, being able to go out in the woods and learn not just those skills, but self reliance, independence, and uh, leadership, and just fostering that can do attitude. Like, hey, here's a skill, now master it, and you learn, hey, I, I can do this. And you just teach. Learning one thing teaches you that you can learn anything. Absolutely. Yeah, I think both. Well, as you guys know, both Chris and I, we've. Uh, had some really good experiences with the Boy Scouts, even though we were on you know, different troops and on different you know areas of the country. But still, that really helped cement and it helped guide us into make us to who we are today. Great foundation for everything yeah. I've, I've yeah. achieved. Yeah. And uh, I think you told me before that you, as a Boy Scout, you went to Philmont. I did. I did. Uh, so for me, that's probably the crowning achievement of my scout career. I did make Eagle, you know, the elite paramilitary rank of, of Eagle <laughs> Scout. Yes, yeah. But. Uh, but speaking of, yeah, you, you finish your thing, then I'm going to jump on that quote. Sure. But uh, so for me, going to Philmont with uh, my father came with me, going to Philmont was definitely the high point of my scout career. It just kind of was the capstone for all the, the training and the backpacking we had done was just to build upon that. And it just every trip after that was a snap. It was really just like a finishing 
trip. Yeah. So, hey, for those that don't know what Philmont is, the two of you have gone. Yes. I, I have not. Okay. Can you explain yeah. what Philmont is? So, Philmont is an area of pristine wilderness out in the New Mexico-Colorado border area in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. I can't remember the exact acreage, but it's just vast, it's, vast. It's massive. Yeah. yeah it's, it's just undeveloped wilderness. And to the point where, like, uh, if you're on top of one of the mountains, you can, you'll see a headlight off in the distance, and that's the only electric light you'll see. It's just totally isolated and just gorgeous. And challenging terrain, too. Yeah, I, I did Philmont, and it was a great experience for, for me as well. And uh, really, I don't think I would have attempted or tried out to, uh, to become a, a Green Beret if it hadn't been for my experience as a youth at Philmont. So you just quoted something about scouts. Uh, what, what was that quote? That was uh, uh, the uh, elite paramilitary organization, Eagle Scout. And, and, and where did that come from? Uh, Red Dawn. From Red Dawn. Yes. The original. Red yes. Dawn, the yes. only Red Dawn, really? 1984. And people keep bringing up that there's a, a second one. I, uh, I, I've I never don't heard know of what it. this no. is. Yeah. No, no. You, you don't want to. Yeah. 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 So while I was at Philmont, one evening we're sitting around the campfire, and uh, the scoutmaster who was you know, leading our, our crew, he all of a sudden starts like, you know, have any of you – seen the movie Red Dawn? I know I had, and a couple of the guys had, and most of the kids, they hadn't. He's like, well, you know, think of that scenario. A place like this would be a fortress. Could you imagine mm-hmm. all of the Boy Scouts up here? We'd be able to hold this place off for forever. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's kind of funny. Yeah. Red Dawn, Boy Scouts, great childhood. Yep. So what is, uh, what's your day job? I know we already mentioned it once, but. So I'm a, I'm a police officer. And so the, the next question is, Why? Did you uh, join the police force? Well, because I got C's in high school. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I actually did fairly decent Best in school. Best answer ever. <laughs> no, so um, so I went to college, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew I just majored in something I liked, which was history. And uh, I got out, and uh, I was like, well, I, I like being outdoors. I, I, I hate working inside, and I kind of like guns and shooting, and you know, it sounds like a decent thing. I, I should also mention my father was a police officer for 30 years. In, uh, so, so, so maybe that had something to do with it? No, that, nothing, no effect whatsoever. Yeah, no. but he wasn't like the stereotypical police father because he was a detective. So he just went to work in a suit and tie and came home like that. And he wasn't like the overbearing, like, you know, TV show You didn't call dad. him sergeant? No, I didn't call him sergeant. No, no. So that... It was like a quiet, like, in the backdrop. And he would use it to, like, teach lessons like, hey... I think one time, so he was a detective, robbery, homicide, and like one time I was changing a light bulb. And he comes over and tells me, because, you know, one time we had an unattended death and a guy had been drunk and gotten up and changed the light bulb and fell off and cracked a skull and just laying on the floor holding a light bulb. I guess the lesson was be careful when you're changing light bulbs. But that, I guess that, so. that was like the extent of these were like, you know, odd deaths, things like that. So, no, but uh, so that kind of germinated in my head and, uh, he was a little, I think, a little hesitant when I told him I was going to take the civil service test and, and, and apply at the same place that he had spent his career. But uh, I just got the thing. I was like, I, I don't know what else I can do. So went down and, and took the test. And Law enforcement by default. I look at you differently now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was either that or go be miserable in an office somewhere. Actually, the— uh, You would have made a great Green Beret. I, I know I've said that to you many times, that I would have crazy. loved to have had you on a team. I mean— you definitely could hang with us. Oh, high praise. I don't know if you would have made a good police officer. No, I would not. <laughs> I know that I would not make a good police officer. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Dirty Harry always said, man's got to know his limitations. I do know my limitations, yes. So as you joined, I assume yeah. then you went to the academy. Yeah, yeah. What's something that you, uh, you know, a good experience or something you learned from the academy? Uh, so one of the things that I think a lot of people don't know is how diverse police departments are. Like, again, I came from a police family, grew up in a very nice area, went to college. Many of my academy classmates didn't have that. Um, I'd say if there was one common thread, many of them had prior military experience, but even that still, that wasn't universal. So just, and that was the thing I saw is that no matter what you did and where you came from, we were all there doing the same thing for the, you know, to do the same job. So that was, that was kind of like a, a big, I was surprised at how diverse it was, but also surprised at how much many of us were just still on the same page despite our differing backgrounds. Yeah. I, um, my first team leader when I was in fifth group, love the guy. He's probably uh, arguably the best officer I ever worked with. He mm-hmm. had an uncanny, uncanny ability to uh, one second he's a ground force commander. Yeah. The, the next second he could make that switch, and now he's he's my uh, you know assistant uh, gunner, and you know he he's listening to me when we're we're doing our thing and and you know engaging the enemy and doing CQB or whatever. And then again, immediately be able to to flip that switch. Now he is a ground force commander, and he's talking to Kaz. He's talking you know, through things. Anyways, just high respect for this guy. And then once he left the team and he started doing a, an office job, he's like, all right, I'm out. I'm here because I'm a shooter and I want to be doing the job, not sitting um, at a desk. Anyways, so uh, he got out and he went to law enforcement. And the last time I saw my buddy, um, you know, he was, in my mind, he's still this, one of the greatest Green Berets I ever worked around and worked with. So then I went up to his graduation. He, he went into law enforcement up in New Hampshire, and I saw him uh, as he graduated. And here he was, a high and stupid, um, with a silly little uniform, running around with all the other uh, cadets at this academy, going hut, 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 and stuff. And I just it blew me away that this man, and he was a man. He was a you know, good shooter, good, just good, good Green Beret. Uh, and here he's just on par with all these other guys. He's now, you know, he went... SWAT, and then he um, started instructing for his police department. And now he also uh, um, sometimes works at the SIG Academy since he's up there. Be really good dude. But yeah, I I, I can see that. You know, yeah. I guess that's part of the one of the things that they do with those academies is is that everyone is on that same page, level playing field. Anything else you learned or a bad experience you had? Okay, the, ba- the, the bad experience I had. At the yeah, academy. Here so <clears throat> it actually started before the academy. So. Okay. In college and, and high school and all that, like my job was always, I was a maintenance man. I worked at golf courses. I worked for, for the local county government doing maintenance, things like that. I, I just liked being outside. Put me outside, I'm, I'm fine. And so when I joined the department, uh, they, they hire you as soon as you're able to be hired. So you just kind of like they find jobs. You're like some guys will be in the evidence vault. Some guys will be out at the range. Some guys will be, you know, just pick a spot. And they're there doing just menial labor. Uh, somebody thought they would be doing... I have a distinctive name, and my father, I'm a junior, so uh, people know immediately who I am and, and whose son I am, so they thought they would do him a, refa- a favor, and they put me in personnel, so that way I wouldn't have to be out, like, gotcha, like yeah, working yeah. hard, and uh, so I was in an air-conditioned office, sorting paperwork, putting things in personnel jackets, and I remember coming home and telling my parents, like, I don't know how much longer I can do this, waiting for the academy to start, I said, this job's sucking the life out of me, I don't know if I can, and they were very concerned, like, oh my God, like, like, this is his first real job. Like, how's he gonna, how's he gonna last? And my mother always thinks it's funny that like, I spent my whole, you know, outside. I'd rather be outside sweating in the sun, working hard, than in an air conditioned office, 
sorting paperwork. But that that was the hardest thing that I ever did in the police department was waiting to go to the academy and sorting paperwork. It was being in the personnel office. Oh God, it was personnel was was terrible. So what I've learned is the hardest <clears throat> job in the police department is the personnel office. Yeah, I don't know. For if 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 you're the right kind of person, I'm sure it's a great job. But <laughs> it wasn't for me. Well, that's you know who I am, and uh, we've all read Starship Troopers. So I don't know when this podcast is going to go out, but that's this month is Starship Troopers. And the one thing I gleaned from there as a kid is there's there's really two jobs in, in the army, and I, I'm assuming there's two jobs in the, in, yep. in the police force too. Yep. It's you're the guy in the ditch with the shovel, or your job is to hand the shovel to the guy who's yep, actually doing the work. Much. Yep. And if I'm not in there doing the work, I I do not want to be that other guy. Yeah, no. Can totally relate. Can totally understand that. So with the academy, one of the big, because this is we are a firearms company, so I guess I should talk about that. So I was a big, I was a big gun guy. Had a lot of you know, had multiple handguns. I had my first handgun I ever bought, Browning High Power, and uh, none of that enthusiasm translated into actual skill when it came time to do firearms <laughs> training. It's like, great, I have all these guns, and I, you know, but uh, I could not shoot. I was a terrible shooter. I mean, I was, it didn't. So the more you spend on guns, yes. it doesn't yes, no. equal it doesn't, no. ability? No, it does not. It's that kind of, that That was a formative okay. thing. I had an instructor who's still there. He's getting ready to retire. But he, uh, there's kind of like, I came in at a time when they were transitioning our firearms training from like the old school, like, very slow, no time to like strict time hacks, combat marksman, combat marksmanship, getting away from some of the bullseye stuff. You couldn't see his air quotes. Yeah, you couldn't see it. <laughs> there were some heavy air quotes there. Um, and so he was one of the newer school instructors, and he was really hammering like, you have to learn this stuff. Remember, he said, uh, you know, police work, it's 90% talking to people and just and just showing up and listening and, and putting things together, but occasionally you may have to use deadly force. That's one thing you can't make a mistake on. And he said, you have to master this gun. No matter what kind of a police officer you're going to be, you have to master this thing. And so when that, I remember after that day, I remember going home and the, you know, I had like a 1911, a couple of revolvers, like Browning high power. And I, I put them all in my safe, locked it up. And I said, I'm not going to touch any gun other than my duty weapon. Which was? Uh, 40 caliber Glock, Glock 22. Okay. With... With a New York trigger. If you don't, if, if you're not Ouch. familiar with a New York trigger, it's it's a great workout for your fingers. <laughs> it is. You know? It is. It is. It is a. I wouldn't call it a, a hardware solution to a software problem because it's not really a solution, but it's it's designed to cover up some perceived shortcomings, and it just makes the gun harder to shoot. Yeah, we had a guy, and um, he's come to a couple of our pistol classes. Um, he's been a he's been in law enforcement in New York City for I don't know close to 20 years oh yeah so he'd bring his service his pistol oh, down yeah. Yeah. and run a course <clears throat> of fire and after the first time he came down running his service pistol yeah. um, we gave him here why don't you try this one at the end of the class identical oh, pistol but but with a stock yeah and it was amazing his group you know which is about the size of I, I don't know like a an good, orange a good orange yeah, yeah. And now he was shooting like a dime the yeah. guy that can yeah. shoot he's doing everything yeah. right it's just that that trigger yeah yeah, it's definitely a, a shortcoming. So, so one of the things that uh, that fascinates me, uh, law enforcement, uh, right. our experiences as Green Brace, interacting with the people. Yeah. And so you brought up ninety uh, percent is that talking to people. Yeah. So something that you learned early on in your career, engaging with the public, that you have taken and grown from, and you use now as an instructor, as a yeah. as a husband, as you know, 
who you are now. Right. So the city that I work in is uh, very Dickensian in nature. Okay, seeing a confused look. Okay, like Tale of Two Cities. It's got very rich, very poor. It's it's a very it's a city known for violent crime. Thank you for explaining that. You know, Flynn went to college. Not all of us went to college. Fifty dollar words. Ah, uh, so it's very violent city, and it has a lot of violence. So the biggest thing that I learned was just it's how to talk to people because I'm like again, physically fit. I can run. I could fight, but we were told if you, everybody runs from you and everybody's got to fight you're going to have a long career. You've mm -hmm. got to learn how to talk to people. And that's most of what policing is, is just talking to people and, and getting through to people and understanding what the issue is or what, you know, your issue is with them if, if they're breaking the law and getting through that so that there's minimal conflict, not from some, like, great big higher thing just because it's more convenient simply to just talk to someone yeah. that then have to take enforcement action. So... The jurisdiction that I work in is known nationally for the violent crime in it. It's a very violent city. It has a lot of crime. Um, and it's, uh, I, so when I came out, uh, because of how I placed, I was offered my, my choice of assignment. So I, so what do you mean by that? Um, when I got out of the academy. Yeah. So, uh, just with my performance in the academy. Okay. So you're saying those who perform to yes, a higher perform degree. Well, get to pick their, get to pick gotcha. their assignments. Okay. They're patrol assignments. You don't get to like go to, you know, a specialized unit right yeah. out of the academy. Yeah. But so I picked uh, a district my father had worked in and it was one of the uh, most violent districts in the city. We, uh, we joke there's only two, this one and another one because they're those the roughest. That, that, uh, to quote somebody else, that's, uh, that's where somebody goes to make their bones. That's what, what a senior guy I knew said, said that's where you go to make your bones, one of those two places. So one of them was known for more, just straight up more violence. That was known for more violence towards police officers. More officers have been killed there than anywhere else in the city. So I said, that's, uh, that's where I want to go. I want to work, uh, work in the toughest spot I can. So being there, I quickly learned that talking to people is the biggest skill you can have. And the thing I learned was just to show up on a call as a patrolman and just say, okay, what's going on tonight? And just let people talk. And half the time, they just wanted to vent to somebody to listen about yeah. the problem, and then we could we could just go from there. And the biggest thing I saw with guys who would turn everything into a into a just a, I wouldn't say a confrontation, but it was adversarial. Like, hey, I'm here, I'm in charge, I'm from the government, I'm gonna I'm gonna square things away. Versus just showing up and letting people talk through it, and then before you know it, hey, they don't really want to make a report on whatever it is, or you can just say, hey, look, man, do you need to call us to deal with your neighbor? You, you can go over there and talk to them like it's not a big deal. You know, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll sort these problems out as a, as a community. And really, that's the, the old school policing that I was taught. You know, it's apples and oranges. I know, yes. it's, I know it's two different things. Yes. But, but my experience as a Green Beret, and I've been on a couple teams, deployed you know, different times, and worked with different people. Yeah. Um, I found that I've always been a very successful individual working with them because I actually cared. Yeah. And because I actually cared, then those, uh, um, you know, depending on, it doesn't even really matter the country or who I'm working with. Yeah. But once they feel, hey, he actually cares, mm -hmm. then they care a little bit too. And yeah. they open up to me and then we can like build that relationship yeah. where other guys, good teammates who don't care, yeah. they can pretend all they want 
and they can say all the right words. They can even articulate it better than I can. Yeah. But those people, they feel this guy doesn't care. So then yeah. there's always that barrier and that wall. And I'm assuming, again, I know it's apples and oranges, but yeah. when you're there on the street and knowing and me knowing yeah. you, that comes across that sincerity. And because you're, you're sincere and okay, what's going on, yeah. that then people then are more inclined then to open up to you oh, and, yeah. and, and resolve yeah. those yeah. things. So I'm going to pick a little bit further into that. Sure. I, I want like a specific type of thing. Your interaction with individuals. I know, like, you know, Jared yeah. and I, we both have that. We've gone to a hostile culture that is different from the way that we, yeah. we have raised. Yeah. Yes. So in that case, it's not apples and oranges. It's it's a Granny Smith and, you know, yeah. Golden Delicious, right? I was going to say Red Delicious. Red Delicious, mm-hmm, okay. Whatever. You know, it's apples and apples. They're just a different brand, right? Yes. Yeah. So you're dealing with a culture yep. that is different than yours. Yes. So... How do you understand that culture, and then how do you apply those things to gain that common ground and and show them that you care that you're there not to, like you said, to punish right. or to to yeah. be the I'm the the rule of law, but yeah. I'm here to establish peace. I'm a I'm a peace officer. Sure. So one of the big things that I I found was I actually preferred working in the uh, higher crime neighborhoods because I found the people there to be more authentic. When you went into the high income neighborhoods, they uh. Entitlement might be the right word. Like, hey, I pay, like, I'm going to tell you what to do. Like, you were beneath them on the social strata, whereas working in more violent crime, more higher crime areas, it was like, hey, we're all in this together. They understood the police are there to do a job. Even if they themselves might be a criminal, they understand the police are there to do a job. I can't tell you how many times I dealt with a guy who says, hey, man, you're just doing your job. And these are, like, actual, like, criminals who, like, that's how they make their living. Not like somebody who ran afoul of the law. Like, they're living outside of the law. And, alternate um, economy. Alternate economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a nice way to refer to the drug trade. Yeah, alternate <laughs> economy. But just uh, one thing that I saw people do that didn't really work was they would try to speak slang as well, and mm-hmm. it just comes off as inauthentic. I, so I was just me, and I just talked how I talked, and they talked how they talked, and through that I was able to. We were all able to kind of come to a common ground because everybody wants the same thing more or less. They want to be able to live without fear. They don't want to get hassled by the government, and they want to be able to go to work, come home, and, and you know, it's just people do things like different ways. Sounds like my wife. That's yeah. what she keeps saying over and over again. What's yeah. that? That she doesn't want to live in fear. Yeah. She wants the government to leave <laughs> leave us all alone. I mean, it, and, you know, of course, everybody has different ideas about how we accomplish that. Yeah. But yeah. at the at the at that that street level, just talking to people. So, so jumping off topic, and I, I mean, one of the things that I like about you, when we, when we were compiling books that we would think that people needed to read, one of the ones that I saw that was on your list that was also on my list was Robert E. Howard. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, Conan, for those of you that aren't, you know, not the movie, yeah. not the comic book, but the actual short stories. The constant theme with him is the difference between the savage and the civilized yeah. man. Yeah, Do you find yourself working with more of those people that they respect each other because they are savage? That they're outside of... I would, civilization. I would say, I wouldn't even say savage. I'd say it's more an old school way of living. Mm-hmm. We're like in, and I'm not saying oh, savage yeah, no, no, is yes, derogatory. Yeah. I'm yeah, using yeah. in in, yeah, his in his sense. language. Yeah, in like the old school way. If you go back like 50 years, if you said certain things to certain people, you make a punch in the face. In polite society, we don't do that anymore. Might go back and might I mean or a, a passive aggressive Facebook post about someone, but you're not gonna like just go throw down because somebody ran his mouth to you. In a lot of the lower income neighborhoods, that mentality is still there, that your, your pride is there. And so if you, it was actually my father who told me, I said, look, a lot of these guys have nothing but their pride. So if you go out there and act like a jerk, 
they're going to fight you. And they don't care if they have to go to jail to prove that they're not, you know, a punk. Treat people with respect until it's become clear that you're going to have to have a confrontation. So tell us a little about your career progression. So you were at the academy, and then, and then after that, what? Uh, oh, so after the academy, you go to what's called uh, field training, which is basically like an apprenticeship. You get assigned to a senior officer who's a field training officer, and they run you through just practical exercise, going on the street, going to calls, learning how to handle things. And that starts off more as an armed ride-along. Then it moves to you jointly handling calls. And then it's just you taking the lead, and he's just there to back seat and make sure you don't do anything uh, too stupid. And uh, after field training, uh, it's kind of selective, the district that I was assigned to. It's a little selective. So most people who were with me in that district went to uh, the foot unit, which is citywide. They just have them go wherever they need to go to walk foot and for whatever, whether it be downtown business district or a high crime area, they just got kind of bounced around. And uh, But I was kept in the district to be assigned to a patrol shift, which is, I wouldn't say unusual, but it showed like, hey, you know, we, we think you've got some potential. So uh, I was assigned to the midnight shift. It was... Uh, it was really quiet, right? <laughs> no, we were, we were rocking and rolling until, uh, until the end of the shift, uh, pretty much, especially in the summertime. Um, actually, my first call on midnights, because I started there in field training, was, uh, was actually a homicide. Uh, we had just come out of shift brief and uh, get a call for discharging in one of the projects. And the FTO I was with said, all right, we'll head that way. But this is a pretty common occurrence. FTO? Uh, field training officer. Okay. This is a pretty common occurrence in that area to get to get gunfire. And as we're heading that way, more calls are starting to come in that it's apparent that it's probably not just, just somebody testing out their new gun. And uh, get there and it had been a, a setup. It was a homicide, so God was there, and, and that was mine. That was my first call as a police officer was, was a homicide. So uh, went to patrol, was there for a uniform patrol, was there for 18 months. And uh, during the time, I know I definitely drove some senior officers crazy because I was pulling over cars all night and, and getting into foot chases and, you know, trying to get, get just get into, you know, do what I could to, to keep myself entertained by finding, uh, finding criminals. And uh, so, yeah, so I was making some good, some decent arrests. And uh, at the time, plainclothes enforcement was very much a priority for for my agency that was our, our crime strategy was was plainclothes enforcement units and uh so because the work i'd been doing my lieutenant put me in for the uh that area's uh plainclothes uh counter gun squad and, and when i say counter gun what i mean is that not guns per se but the focus was on violent crime not drugs even though drugs did drive a lot of the violent crime the focus was hey we're going to try to just get robberies uh murder suspects shooting suspects and just not just purely drugs so where did you where did you so, go after uh, that? same same thing i was in the same area doing the same thing just now in plain clothes and a uh in a little plain clothes squad and that was uh that was a lot of fun that was probably the most fun i ever had it was just we were just out there and just getting bad guys like actual actual bad guys dudes bad guys with guns and uh, it was a lot of fun. I learned learned a lot, got a lot of good stuff. But I'd say the high point for my career was uh, detectives were interviewing a suspect. In well, he was he had been grabbed with something else, and so they were they're interviewing him, trying to get information for homicides and robberies because that had become the focus. Hey, we don't care about the drugs; we just want robberies and homicides. And they were talking to him, and he'd given them a name of a guy who's a shooter and a couple of uh, murders, and uh, but he only had a street name. And uh, like, well, we need a real name. And he goes, man, ask Training Day. They know who he is. They're always out there ripping and running. And Training Day is how people on the street refer to myself and my partner. 
because my partner, Greg, was black and I was white. And uh, <laughs> so they thought we looked like Denzel Washington and, and, and uh, it was Ethan Hawke in training day. Like people, people used to call me like Jake Hoyt uh-huh. like from training day. Okay. So that they, they call this training day. Like the, the two of us were, were training day. So to know that, you know, not only did we have a nickname on the street, but people knew like, hey, these guys will know who this guy is. They know who he is. So that was. Uh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So you did that for how long? 18 months. 18 months? 18 months. Okay. And uh, yeah, then I I kind of was trying to decide, like, hey, where am I going to go? Am I going to pursue this plain clothes thing? Do I want to go or go be a detective like like my father was? That was kind of my thought was go be a suit and tie detective. But you ended up trying out for SWAT. I ended up trying for SWAT. W- why'd you do that? A uh, little bit of a silly reason, but also it's my joking reason, but there's also some, some truth. There's a bigger truth to it. Uh, at the time, we were not authorized to carry weapon lights. No one had a weapon light but SWAT. And so we were told, because there's rumors, because there's nobody knows about what SWAT does, very secretive, they're very closed off shop. We were told if you went through SWAT school, the SWAT selection process, you'd be authorized to carry a weapons light. I said, wow, that's great, because I, I can tell, if you've been to a low light class, you've heard my disdain for the FBI search positions, because I have chased guys down alleys with guns, <laughs> and I've got my flashlight held above my head off to here, and my gun here, and I'm thinking, there's no way, if this turns into a shooting, I'm going to be able to, to hit this guy. So, um, so it was that, but, but in truth, it was a bigger thing. There was an incident in my jurisdiction that, that actually made international news, and it was right actually where I worked in my little assigned area. And uh, so we had to hand it off to SWAT. And I remember thinking, like, I, I want to be the guy with the shovel, not the guy yeah. handing the shovel. I said, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll do this thing. I'm, I'm in good shape, you know. I'll try out for this. This seems like it could be fun. And, again, I knew nothing about what SWAT did because they were such a secretive, just closed-off group. So, so yeah, I made the decision that I was gonna, I was gonna try out for SWAT. Cool. Um, you reminded me of a, again my my old team leader. Uh, he told me that uh, when he was playing clothes, mm-hmm. that he and uh, his partner they got called out and it, I guess what's the term uh, barricaded. Yeah, subject? barricaded. Subject, okay. Yeah. So uh, a former law enforcement guy and yeah. uh, they had he was in a hotel room with mm-hmm. somebody else that he had as a hostage. Yeah. So they were the first ones to show up, and then uh, then the SWAT team showed up and he said he'd only been on the job as if I can recall correctly like yeah. maybe a year or so so uh, uh he got a lot of hey rook go here or, hey go yeah. there or, or do this do that and really you know like d- demeaning it and talking yeah. down to him which you know you know fine the SWAT's there to do their thing and I guess they were there for I don't know how many hours 10 12 hours finally successfully talked the guy down and everything was done and as they were wrapping up and and I guess guys rolling out then all of a sudden the SWAT commander called him over like hey rook come here and then when no one was around he's like hey I know your background how do we do? How do we look? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did we do yeah. okay? Yeah, you know. And then again, he's hey rookie, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of funny. Anyways, yeah. um, so you tried out for SWAT. Uh, in your own words, I know we've described um, what it means to be a Green Beret to us. So there's no, you know, there's no wrong answer. But what does SWAT mean to you? So, one thing that people have to understand is most jurisdictions do not have full-time teams. It's a collateral duty. It's just like a lot of other things. They're just a small department. We're one of the 10 largest departments in the country. Again, a violent area. Uh, we're a large, large department. We have 3,500 people. And uh, so our SWAT team is full-time, and that's all those guys do. I guess that's all I do is, uh, is just the SWAT stuff, just critical incidents. So, again, it's not like uh, – I got friends in smaller departments, and it's like they'll know a SWAT guy. Like, hey, he's the guy in the next car over. That's what they do once in a while. These guys were just like you didn't know those guys, and you didn't see them because all they were doing was SWAT stuff. They'd show up, handle an incident, and leave. And uh, that kind of like 
because I didn't know much about it. I, I'm actually glad I didn't know much about it because it could have been, it could have made a different a difference in what I what I wanted to do. But so uh, it was a different level. Um, <clears throat> one of the things my father told me when I joined the department is, look, you know, you're going to have to set your own standards. There, the, the standards are minimal in the department and police work. They just are. There's not, you know, super enforced. I mean, we've all seen the fat cops. We've all seen guys who can't shoot. And so his thing was, you're going to have to set your own standards and make your decision what kind of guy you want to be. And uh, when I went, SWAT actually held practice tryouts, to come, which I thought, looking back, I think was really good because it lets you get like a taste of things. Like, hey, is this something I want to do? And I saw, I looked around and I saw every guy there, whether they be a, just an instructor or cadre, whatever, or the guys trying out. They were all fit and motivated, and they wanted to be there, and they took it very seriously and very professionally. So I looked around that and said, you know, this is, I think this is something I want to do, be with these professionals, just the way they talked and, and, and carried themselves. And they weren't, they weren't arrogant, but they were confident, and they knew that they, you know, more or less knew what they were doing. And so I said, that's, that's, I think that's something I want to try out for. And in policing, so much of it is subjective. Like, what makes a good detective? If a guy clears a case, was that pure luck or did he put in the effort? And a lot of it is effort. But with SWAT, it was the one place in the department that had hard standards to get into. You have to do this many pull-ups, this many push-ups, shoot this well. Other places were like, well, you know, guys could always sneak through the cracks occasionally. But with SWAT, it just didn't seem like that. So seeing that, the challenge that it was really, really uh, motivated me to try. So the, uh, the selection process, my selection pool was 77 guys. Uh, not counting medics, because we draw our medics from the fire department, and they have to, to go through the same training. So 77 guys, and uh, I was like, man, these, these guys look really, really in shape. And uh, we went through. It was a PT test, and, after, and it was all, if you got a no-go at any station, that was, you were gone. That was it. No no do-overs, no, like, oh, aggregate score. It's either you're, if you're not meeting the minimums, too bad. Then after that, we drove out to the, to the firearms training facility, and uh, we did the standard departmental qual which uh, we had to the minimum acceptance for the rest of the department is 70. Just to get into SWAT was a 90. And uh, I was not, still not that great of a shooter. I mean, I, I was better than I had been in the academy because, again, mm -hmm. I just wasn't happy with my shooting. But uh, I was still not that great of a shooter. I shot a 96 on the standard daylight course. Then we had to shoot the SWAT firearms course which was also required a 90 and the shooting i think that knocked out more guys in the pt just because either just lack of ability or guys just just got inside their own heads and and, and just had those bad range days and that was the end of their 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 run up that year and then after that then we had a written exam on departmental policies and procedures that would relate to uh swat and things that you should know about you know use of force that sort of thing then we had an oral interview with the, uh, with their sergeants, lieutenants, and uh, and the senior officers, and then after that they made their decisions on who would go to the selection process. And generally, if you pass it, if you pass everything, you go to the selection process. And that's a three-week school. Why is that? Because by that point they've the, attrition. They've already gotten yes. to, okay. And and their thought is, well, we could have a diamond in the rough. Maybe they got us an interview well, but we'll send him to the school. Okay. See, you know. But that's so. Then that was a three-week selection school. And uh, that was, uh, it was both harder and easier than the academy. The physical standards are much higher. What was being asked was much higher. But in the academy, the basic level academy, you have a lot of people who are there for a job. 
So like, all right, I'm going to get through this. And you have guys, you know, it's in SWAT selection, every guy wanted to be there. So even though more was being asked of us, it was offset by the quality of people that you were you were going through yeah, that yeah. process with. So, and then uh, then at the conclusion of the school, you know, guys who hadn't been dropped for PT or safety violations, I think we were down to nine, nine guys out of uh, that. Would you say seventy-seven? Seventy-seven. Okay. And then after the psyche eval and the second round of interviews, it was uh, it was five of us got got taken to the team. So you got to the team, and how long have you been on the team now? Roughly. Oh, I actually start my uh, my tenth year on the team. Right on. In, in the next couple of weeks. So, related experience um, that you've had on SWAT mm-hmm. that uh, that's something that you personally you know has made a difference or something you've learned. Um, you know, I'm not really in. I'm not the kind of guy that just tells cool guys stories to tell yeah, cool, cool guys right, stories. Yeah. But, you know what? You know what I mean? Something to drive home a point. Something that you learned, whether you know good or bad. Well, I'd say you learn how much people – I didn't realize how much you stood out to the rest of the department, that everyone's watching you to see what you do and how you handle things. And from recruits, because we are involved a lot at the recruit level teaching them, to just commanders even, uh, the thing that really impressed that upon me was I'd been on the team maybe six months, and uh, there was – due to a sporting event – there was a major crowd control issue beginning in a, in a part of the city. And so uh, my sergeant was like, hey, new guys, go over there and, and check this thing out and see see what's going on. Because it was just starting to sound a little hairy on the radio. Mm-hmm. So we go over there. It's me and uh, three other new guys. And uh, there's eh, maybe 100 police officers, maybe like 20 sergeants, and you know, a handful of lieutenants and, and a captain and a major. And a big crowd. They're getting angry. They're getting violent. They're starting to break things. And uh, – we show up, and, and at the time we were still wearing wearing navy blue BDUs, but we were the only ones who wore BDUs in the whole department. And we had uh, subdued patches, the regular patch, just subdued. So we we stood out to among regular uniformed yeah. police officers, and uh, we kind of were there. We're like, all right, well, let's let's see what we're supposed to really do. And this major and captain comes up and goes, okay, what's uh, what's the plan? What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, keep in mind, I, I was still not just new in SWAT, but new in the department. I was I actually got on the team. I was. I only had like three years in the job yeah. when, I, when I got to the team, which was just a combination of luck and, and just good timing. But so I'm like, why is this major's got like 25 years? And why is he, why is he asking me what, what we're going to do? So we're like, okay. Uh, we got their guys in a skirmish line. We started, we managed to, you know, resolve the crowd control incident without it really blowing up and turning into a riot. And just driving back, like, so it hit me that we are looked at as a force multiplier for the rest of the department, that we're going to show up and people are going to follow our lead, good or bad. Yeah. And that it's it's cool to have that much faith in you from people. Then you now have a duty to make sure that you are doing the right thing and that you aren't making mistakes. You know, um, well, we have that same kind of, collectively have that same kind of effect sometimes with, with the regular Army. Um, when I was still active in the fifth group, my company – um, we went and did a NTC rotation. So that's uh, Fort Irwin in, in um, California. Mm-hmm. Huge war game, and mostly it's mechanized kind of stuff. Right. And, oh, I need to get closer, I think. But anyways, um, so we're going to be working for these these uh, big regular Army battalions. And uh, so when our company commander, 
Major Basha went to do the first link up with with these colonels, Fulbert colonels and some light colonels and all their support staff and everything to, you know, let's plan and start to, you know, build those those communication lanes. Um, what was the biggest concern for those colonels? It wasn't the actual how are we going to conquer the enemy? How are we going to run this war game? It, their major concern was uh, telling my company commander, we really would like your guys not to wear ball caps because if they wear ball caps, our guys are going to want to wear ball caps. And then if they wear ball caps, then our whole chain of command is going to fall apart because now we won't be able to in, enforce any kind of discipline. And they were afraid of, of something silly like that, that me wearing a, a ball cap um, was going to have a, catastrophic effect on you know thousands of other discipline yeah Yeah. you know so i was a private and we did a a big uh exercise joint we had the air force there dropping bombs um and our battalion um physician's assistant was a 18 delta who had gone and worked for a different organization and then had uh decided to become an officer and, and go the pa route and he got assigned to our unit. This guy was uh, had a President's 100, had a, a long tab, had a Ranger tab. The guy was experienced. I mean, wealth of knowledge. And I remember our battalion commander, who had his own 20 years of experience, turning to this you know lieutenant and being like, "Well, uh, what would you do here? How would how would you?" And I was a I was a new guy. I didn't understand what a Green Beret really did as that force right. force multiplier and be able to uh, come in and, and give good advice and things like that. And years later, when I found myself in that situation where I'm out there with a <clears throat> battalion commander and I'm a sergeant first class and I'm giving recommendations, yeah, because of hey, yes, I am a force multiplier and this is this is who I am. And the importance of that drove home to me to make sure I had the good advice and I, that I educated myself, not just like, oh, yeah, throw something random and see if it sticks. Yeah, and that's definitely one of my favorite things to do is as much as I do like the the big critical incidents, and they are such a challenge, it's uh, it's doing what we call emergency cruising patrol where we drive around and back up patrol and we just go to hot calls, robberies, armed suspects, things like that, and being able to show up and, and get involved in those incidences and help resolve them before they become critical incidents. And that's just one of, it's it's very seat of the pants stuff and it's very fun. And like you said, you're showing up to be able to help out at yeah. that level. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Sure. Uh, what drove you to seek outside training? Yeah. Uh, wait, wait, so, wait. I don't think that guys listening heard that side <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, anybody who's been police knows, um, you do hit stagnation at some point within an organization. And the guys that I was working with were very good guys, but we had hit a period of just institutional inertia that was hard to overcome. If you look at pictures from when I came down in like 2012 to pictures like mm, 2000, you'd be hard pressed to pick which era it was from. You just, just based on like the way guys dressed and what they wore and just like there was, the evolution of things wasn't evolving. We were not changing with the times and, and, and getting – we weren't keeping up with progress. And uh, that's not actually why I saw it outside training because I didn't start truly seeing that until I went to outside training. I started seeking outside training because of the inadequacies that I felt that I either needed more time or whatever. Like to give you an example, 
uh, one of my first raids in SWAT. I hadn't been turned along, and yet again, my agency had no patrol rifles. Shotguns were for supervisors. It was just you and, and the pistol on your hips. So, wait, wait, wait. Say that again? My agency had no patrol rifles. This is SWAT. No, no, no. This is no. This is patrol. This okay, is, okay, okay. This is everyone okay. but SWAT. Right. SWAT were the only guys in the gotcha. department okay. who had anything other than a pistol. Okay, go and ahead. Occasional shotguns, but so the only thing I was qualified on was a shotgun, a Remington 870. So I was told to grab a, a shotgun for the position that I would be in on the perimeter because they were concerned about this uh, large, vicious dog in the backyard. And I, well, you know, you're going to need something to protect yourself. You need a shotgun. Well, again, I'd been trained, right? I had my training. Well, I was so nervous doing this that I actually loaded a, a shotgun round backwards into the uh, into the magazine <laughs> tube. Get ready to go out. And, and I didn't know it at the time because I was just like, you know, jam that thing in the tube and I'm loading more. And when I'm unloading it after the operation, uh-huh. I'm like, well, why isn't this? Oh, my God. I'm like, what a screw up am I? Like, God. And, and that told me like, hey, man, if you're that nervous, that means you don't know what you're doing. You need to go practice more. And so I started practicing more and more on my own. Like, hey, I can't afford to make a mistake. I... I'm the only variable here. I have to fix these things. So I kind of hit what I felt like was a plateau in my training. And I said, well, I need to, I need to start seeking outside training. I need to, to figure out what my shortcomings are and get better because I can't afford to make, make those mistakes. And, and you spend a little bit of time with Kirk now at yes. this point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. Yes. No, yeah. No, I'm, I'm much better with the shotgun yeah, yeah. now. Much better with the shotgun. But it's, it was just that, hey, you were training the academy. And academy, I think our shotgun course was like eight hours and we fired ten live rounds. Mm. Which is, you know, three slugs and seven T- buck. T for trained. Yeah, right. Yeah, T for really. trained. Yeah, you're, you know, you're blessed off. You are now trained. Go forth and do good things. Yeah, it's uh, not so much. So, what was some of the training that you sought out? Uh, I knew a lot of the big names, but I didn't want to kick out all the money to go fly in a hotel because I said, how good, you know, how I know what a good class is. I don't know. Yeah. So I found this company up uh, up in Pennsylvania, run okay. by a, a guy who purported to be a Green Beret. Yeah. Jared Ross and uh, purported. Reported, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I did my own fact-checking because I think one of the things about police that is, is both good and bad is they're very cynical people, and there are a lot of liars out there. So I ran your name and who you were through a uh, former Green Beret that I knew through an Army unit that we trained with a fair bit, and he came back and said, yeah, no, the guy's the real deal, and he, he used to be with the Legion, which I didn't know what that meant at the time. but Which I was kind of disappointed at Christmas I didn't have that sign. <laughs> I'm just saying, now that you've seen the, the studio here, yeah. it would go well it in would. here. It would. The Legion Drive does need to be up here. Yes. Hmm. Do you want to give some context for the, the Legion thing? I, I don't know if I should have to even explain this. They should know who the, the Legion is. The, the Legion is 5th Special Forces Group, the best of all Special Forces Groups. Absolutely. It is a brotherhood. So after... My guy had vetted and said, nope, these guys are the real deal. You know, that I, I don't know about their company, but this guy is exactly who he says he is. I said, okay. So I signed up for the course, and, you know, it was relatively local to me, so I went up there, and uh, it was it was a patrol rifle course, wasn't it? I don't recall. Yeah, it was a patrol rifle course, and actually it was kind of a smaller course because of the uh, the Eric Freinman hunt. Oh, yes, yeah, okay. And a I'm... lot of agencies had burned up all their, their funding, so it was like me and like two or three other guys yeah. with you and, uh, and another instructor. And that was really, I, I got that and I just got hooked. I said, this is good, this is good. Because so much of, of any time you run in-house training, there's always a degree of like, all right, let's get through this. And, and again, my agency, our team, we train, we have 12 training days a month. The national average for SWAT teams, I think the NTOA recommends is one or two a month. So we were just training constantly. And sometimes when it's always the same guys in charge of training, 
no matter how good you are, you're going to run out of ideas. Yeah. And so after a while, just you just get in a rut sometimes. And that's whether you're an armed citizen or, or you're a soldier or you're a police officer, going out and seeking outside training helps break you out of that rut. It shows you new things. Some things you'll see and say, oh, God, that's really dumb. And it just validates that you're, what you're doing is right. And other things you see and say, oh, man, that's, that's pretty smart. We should probably be doing that. And it gives you and it, it breaks free, helps break you free those those bonds of, of just institutional inertia. So I got, I got hooked. And after that, I started doing more and more firearm stuff and with you and other guys. Yeah. And you've, you went to a lot of our, our classes. Yes. Yes. But, and even though this is our podcast, I don't care. Please tell us who yeah. are some of the uh, gorilla the approach. Aaron Baruga, okay. who's, who's not doing training anymore. He's doing some, some other stuff, but he was a great guy. Uh, esoteric use of Sansor down in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, attended a few closed courses with different government agencies and, and, high-end, high-level federal teams and, and military units. And uh, again, because of where I work, I've been afforded the opportunity to train with the very best yeah. of, uh, of, of those kind of units. And it just it just lights a fire. And you're like, hey, I, I got to get better. I got to get better. It's like you're playing Pop Warner and you're getting a, a, a week or two with the New England Patriots. You're like, well, let me take in everything I can. I think actually uh, one of the military units that uh, we were – training at the same site for a week so we were a lot of notes were being shared because we we're sharing the same range the same shoot houses and uh i were being back in my my little dorm room at the facility we we're at with my laptop and i'm typing up notes just trying to remember conversations i had with these guys just like all the just all the knowledge you're getting just not even on the firing line just loading mags yeah and just a little downtime between training yeah. so that's well and that's Last year was the first time that we ran that five-day Cephal yes, class. Yes, um, you know, Just running the flat range. And uh, one of the things programmed and, and part of that curriculum mm-hmm. is all the downtime. Okay, now it's time to jam mags. Everyone's yep. going to sit down. And then we purposely, we're going to put out the story. We're going we're gonna to share this experience. We're going to have that time to, to talk and share. Yeah. And some of the feedback was that was um, the firearms training itself was awesome. But yeah. But that downtime and that talking and that comparing notes, that was you know almost even more uh, beneficial yeah. for, for some of the students yeah. than actually uh, running the gun. I know why I asked you to, to come uh, working for us. Um, and you mentioned it before, and that's uh, um, you don't have that, that attitude, that, that superiority you know, complex that I'm, I'm better than everybody else. You're humble, but then also you're, uh, you have the confidence. And that's one of the reasons I saw that with you and, and, and also knowing that your background is definitely different than mine. Mm-hmm. So you would add a lot to it. That's one of the reasons why I asked you if you would be interested to come and, and help and, and run some of the classes. So, you know, that was my, my reason why I brought you on. But uh, tell us, why do you like to teach and why do you like to train? So a big part of it is, and again, I was not a good shooter in the academy, but I was meeting the, the minimum required scores. And I, I, had, I have an ego. I want to shoot 100. So I went to the range staff as a recruit, and I said, hey, I, I need some help. I need to shoot. I want to shoot hundreds. And they said, hey, don't worry about it, man. You're passing. Like, don't worry about <laughs> it. And, and that's not a knock on them because they're, they're, their job as the range staff is to get – we run God, five or six academy classes a year of 50 guys piece. So you're talking two, 300 people. You've got to get out the door. And there are people shooting 20s and 30s. Yeah, yeah. They don't have time to waste on the guys who are passing. And so that's that's not a knock on them. That's they've got their own mission. They've got to keep yeah. feeding meat into the, into the meat grinder to get guys out there. But well, there's a government agency, a yeah. smaller agency that um, 
they've hired us a couple of times to go and to specifically work with their agents who who can't qual. Yeah, and yeah. Just, it's, I mean, it's a real problem. Yeah. yeah. So, so, I, so, with the perspective of maturity and time, like, okay, I get it. those guys aren't being jerks. They have more bigger problems to worry about than my ego wanting to shoot a hundred. But that's kind of what motivated me when I started teaching within my agency. Uh, we started at the recruit level and at the in-service level, and I just saw what it, you have such a tremendous opportunity to, to help people learn more than you did. Like if you give them a better platform, maybe five, ten years from now, they'll be the guy giving somebody else a better platform, and everyone gets better. And just kind of seeing those guys who are hungry for knowledge, like, oh, here's the guy I'm going to invest my time into because he wants to be better. And that's just it's, – it's, it's rewarding – as an instructor, but my own selfish reasons are I like people being better because I'm going to have to work with those guys. Next question then. Um, in your own words, why Lodestone? Well, I'd say they were hiring. Uh, oh, 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 why work for them or why should you train with them? Uh, hey, however you want to interpret okay, that. Okay, well, I mean, why I mean, Lodestone I mean, as, as far as work? Let, let's say both. Yeah. Why? Why did I work? Because our standards are so low. Or? Oh no, 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 not at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, no, I mean, I just—it's since the first class I took, I was impressed with the professionalism, and without the antics, the the entertainment value. It was, hey, we're here, we're going to learn, we're going to shoot. There was not this cult of personality, despite the fact that that most instructors have a a resume that would maybe lend itself to building a cult of personality. It's simply, hey, I'm just a guy. Here's what I've learned. Here's what I've done. Here's how that can make you better. And that's why I was attracted to, to coming to teach. Also, I saw it as an opportunity for myself to kind of branch out because almost all the training I had done as a student or as an instructor had been closed courses for government only. And I hadn't had, even though I'd grown up shooting and going to ranges, I hadn't had a whole lot of interaction with the, the armed citizen. Like as a, because where I worked, nobody was really legally armed. And uh, at the classes, it was always just police or military. So it kind of, I felt, hey, this will give me an opportunity to branch out. And maybe, you know, I thought I was going to be really teaching more to them. But I, I've actually picked up quite a bit from the open citizen, the open enrollment armed citizen classes. Just like I've, it's the questions that are asked because there's not like this. They're not looking at through the lens of this is what I was taught. It's just they're just sponges and they'll ask questions that you're like, whoa, I didn't even think about that. And it, it makes you a better instructor and a better performer. And as far as training with Lodestone, it's, it's, there's not the ego. You're not going to get yelled at like there's a drill sergeant there. It's not a bunch of made up stuff or like, hey, this looks cool on Instagram. It's just solid fundamentals. And I think sometimes people get caught up in the flash of other things being uh, uh, sold, like enter, enter training. Enter, entertainment, entertaining, something like that. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll come up with something clever yeah. later. Um, then we can edit that in. John. Yeah, we'll add that in. John, John's John, at, John's at can good. you wave yeah. your wand? Wave your wand, make that, make that work. Um, entertainment? It's just, it just professional and, and low-key, and there's no drama. Okay. You've recently uh, started doing some competition shooting. I, yes. I, already, I already know the answer to this, but yes. I'll, I'll ask because it, it fits exactly with you know your yeah. reasoning for everything else, but why did you start uh, competition shooting? Uh, I wanted to be better. I wanted to do better, and I needed. Uh, I was looking for something productive to do on a Saturday, and I said, you know, I'll go try IDPA because it was the sport that seemed less gamey, and also, you know, money's always an issue. It's uh, 
didn't require a whole lot of equipment. You got a pistol, you got a holster, go shoot. And uh, forcing, if all you do all day is what you want to do, you're never going to get better. You have to do things on other people's terms. And that's what competition and going to outside training is. It's doing what somebody else wants you to do. And, yeah, no, I mean, I, I will admit, even though I, I try not to have an ego or an attitude, I still have something of an ego. Yeah. And when I show up and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a SWAT guy. I've been a police officer for like 13 years. I'm a SWAT for like 10. I'm pretty good at firing instructor. Yeah, I should do pretty well. Man, <laughs> these guys handed me it. I got, I got beat pretty bad. I mean, these guys were good. There's good. I mean, and there's a few things like I obviously we talked with Kirk. Cause like, yeah, there's some things you'll make in the competition world that are decisions that you would not make in the in the real world. Absolutely. But it doesn't change the fact these guys were shooting more, faster, more accurately than I was. I mean, by a, by a big margin. Yeah. And but rather than take my ball and go home, I said, oh, well, I, I got to get better. I got to go out and if these guys are just doing this as a hobby and I carry a gun for a living, I've got to get even better. Yeah. You know, I've got if this is what somebody can do. I need to be able to perform perform at that at that level too. You know, I have mentioned we we've talked about it before on here and a lot in the classes. There is definitely a difference between combat shooting, oh, defensive yeah. shooting, oh, yeah. and and in the competition world. Yeah. There's definitely a difference. You know, um, not one is better than the other. But even with my drive for for that combat shooting yeah. or, or the defensive shooting, there's yeah. so much you can learn at, at oh, those comps. Absolutely. If yeah. you're willing to show up there, and and just accept. Not that I stood a chance of winning. Like if I just started running, shooting, I'm gonna take all these guys. Still, but if you just say I'm here to become a better defensive shooter, I'm not gonna try to run this like a game. I'm just gonna try to be fast and accurate while adhering to the principles of, of, of sound tactics. Yeah, you, you're gonna get better. It's impossible to go up and shoot against these guys and not get better. Yeah. I mean, I'd already had a kind of a taste of it because a lot of the shooting that that like my team will set up is very similar to the competition shoots. It's we put guys on a shot timer, it's on a clock, you're shooting against other guys, you're shooting for uh, beer money or bragging rights mm-hmm. or shooting for dinner. And it's it's not a lot on the line, but it's it's competition is good if it's understood correctly. Yes, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Um, so you've already answered this, but I'm gonna ask it uh, in a different way, so maybe you'll give us more information, but how have you grown um, by teaching? Uh, I think it's made me much more patient. And the thing is that I've always worried about is looking stupid. And the last thing I want to do is tell a student something wrong. And then they find out from somebody else, hey, this guy was just blowing smoke. So because of being more patient, more circumspect in, in what I say and how I say, and really just built upon everything else I've done with being like learning how to talk to people, learning how to present information. And I think when you get good instructors, and there are many good instructors mm-hmm. out there, most of them have similar backgrounds and they're teaching the same or very similar things. The difference comes in how the information is presented and that doesn't make one better than the other. It's just simply different communication styles, different learning styles, and just sometimes, there's actually this FAWA course which I attended as half student, half uh, you know, half instructor and uh, it's, you know, you've obviously helped me become a better shooter and then like Chris just came by and said, one thing, I put your knee over your foot for recoil control. I was like, oh, it was just one little thing, just one little common observation, and just made me that much better. Yeah. So that's and it's the same thing as seeing other people and uh, and making them better. Uh, I was actually working with a recruit class, uh, so everybody knows how the end of the year is. They're trying to jam up through qualifications, like guys who've been putting off, and they still have to run the recruit classes. So because everyone in my unit is a firearms instructor, we get tasked with assisting the range from time to time when they need more instructors. So, because 
shooting in service is one thing, but when you're teaching raw recruits, you have a different instructor to student ratio. And uh, I had a guy there, and they were doing a practice course of fire, and then they're going to shoot the same course of fire for record for their qualification. And if you, if there was a point where like they're going to fire you if you can't shoot. They're mm-hmm. like, hey, look, man, you're just you got to you know hit the bricks. But uh, I'd watch this guy who who was in my little group that I was watching, and he was just shooting crazy. Like, he had a tight group, but he was just low left, like, and he was shooting in the seventies, whatever. And so I pulled him aside and said, hey, look, for this next one, just sink more finger on the trigger. Just more finger on the trigger. We're shooting Glocks. It's a New York trigger, and it's just. The problem is a lot of the instruction comes from 1911s, where you can yep. get away with just the tip yep. of the finger yep. on the trigger. Absolutely. Well, you've heard me say that over yes. and over again oh, with, yeah. with our experience with the yes. bread is the Glocks. Yeah, yep. go ahead. So he looks at me. He's like, well, you know, they told us in the classroom we're supposed to. I said, look, man. I said, I'm telling you this. I said, if you fail, I will I will fix it. I will make sure that they understood you were listening to me. But I said, just go down there. I showed him where to put his f- trigger finger, whatever. What does he do? He goes out and shoots 100. <laughs> just, it, just, it just took that group that was low left and just yep. Yep. right in the, in the center of the, uh, of, the, of the silhouette target we use. And he's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I shot 100. And I'm not saying that's a very difficult course of fire because anybody here who's been police or military knows the courses of fire that most organizations put out are not terribly rigorous. But that's all the more reason why you should be shooting 100. So to watch this guy's face line up, like he never thought he could shoot 100. And just with one word of thing, just fix that, that was – you know, being able to just see one or two things and, and just adjust that and help a guy increase his performance. Rewarding. That's, rewarding. that's awesome. Rewarding, that's yeah. the word for it, yeah. That is awesome. The last couple of questions, um, you might have just answered it. I was going to ask you, what's the most re- rewarding experience you've had as a police officer? And the next was, what's your most rewarding experience while teaching? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if, if, if that was the most, but that, that was pretty good. So I'll actually go ahead and I'll give an example from uniform patrol, okay. one from plain clothes, and, and, and one from being in, in a tactical unit. Uh, uniform patrol, hmm, trying to think of what a good one is there. Most rewarding experience as a, as a uniform patrolman. That you got to go to plain clothes? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Patrol is definitely a grind, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it was the first time. I actually listened to the whole watch the hands thing, and it was, uh, well, no, yeah, actually, no, 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 I'll, I'll say that one, but it was, there's a whole thing, watch the hands, and sometimes you get overblown, like, oh, you got to watch the hands, the hands kill, it's like, you do, but let's not get too amped up here, but it was, they said, hey, look, when you're walking up on a bunch of guys, just, just watch their hands, because if they're going to ditch something, they're going to, they're going to do it with their hands, like, that's where it's going to come from, so, the first time we're walking up on these guys, and uh, I'm watching this guy's hand, and I see him drop a baggie with probably 10 vials of crack into a thing. Not the bust of the century, but it was that first time I'm like, aha, this actually works. Like, And then I started wondering how much other stuff I'd missed in the past. Um, the, I'd say, but the actual most rewarding one was uh, got a call, two guys fighting in an alley, uh, one had a gun. So... I'm going down the alley, you know, guys are showing up. Because, again, we midnight shifts, you always get good back up there because there's no traffic. And we're creeping down this alley, and I can hear something. I'm like, of course, right on time, I thought I wish I had a weapon light. Uh, <laughs> but so I had my, my, my mag light, and I'm like, okay, let me look in this alleyway. And there's this backyard and a lot of abandoned homes. And, and I light it up, and there's a guy on his knees with his hands behind his, his head, and there's another guy whose hands I can't see, like, behind him. Like, oh, my, like, okay, this is real. Like, this this is this 
somebody walk this guy down the alleyway. And we start giving the guy commands, and he, you know, kind of messes his waistband, and he turns around, and he's walking towards his hands. I was like, hey, man, I, yeah, I, I don't know what's going on. So he breaks, he takes off running. I, uh, I end up catching him. Um, it was a big fight. It was like my first big, really, really dust up with a guy. And uh, we get him in cuffs, and we go back, and, and dude's like, oh, my God, thank you. He was a cab driver. And he's like, God, this guy, this guy, another guy, I guess, had, had carjacked him, and they had taken him down the alley. And the one suspect had sent his partner to go with the ATM card and try to get the, the money out of the guy's account. And the guy didn't have enough money. So this guy's like, all right, man, we're going to kill you. We're going to shoot him and kill him. And we just showed up, and we were able to get this guy. And that other guy, uh, you know, he went to jail for a little while, of course, you know. But that was that was pretty rewarding. I mean, uh, there's not a lot of people get walked down an alleyway with yeah. a gun to the back of their head. Who, they're going to get executed. Yeah, yeah. right. Oh, that's man. that's so that was uh, that was very fulfilling to see that we had, we had saved that guy. <sighs> yeah. um, just just luck showing up in, in the nick of time. Um, plain clothes. Uh, we were driving around in an unmarked car, but. As everybody knows, uh, most unmarked police cars are pretty obvious if you know what you're looking at. They so look the, like police cars. Yeah, the uh, yeah the the, the 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 black Crown Vic mm. with the with no hubcaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> everyone knew who that was. <laughs> um, so we're driving the street one day, and uh, my partner and I, and uh, we get flagged down by this woman, and we're like, ah, God, like the, I don't want to make it sound like we resent it, but we're out there hunting. We're looking for bad guys. We don't want to deal with, oh, you got your car broken into. Patrol can handle that. Like, that was kind of like our attitude. But I'm like, all right, man, she's, let's, let's not, let's see. You know, we can always call patrol and have them handle it. She goes, oh, my daughter was just raped. We're like, oh, okay, well, all right, that's, that's what we're looking for. Like, that's the suspects we're, we're here to go after, the bad guys. And they give us a good description, and we're driving around, and uh, I see him. I see him walking down the street. I'm like, oh, that's, that's the dude. And he starts doing the quick walk, looking over his shoulder. And he's trying to get in a house, and he's doing, like, the, the nervous key. Like, he's trying to get the key in the, in the lock before we – and I just get out. We're, we're on him. We, we get him cuffed up, and we uh, – they bring the victim by to do an ID. Yep, that's the guy. We take him down to the, the, the detective unit, and they talk to him. And uh, I guess, like, six months later, I was actually in SWAT when I went, when I went to trial. And uh, I wouldn't say my testimony was – it was minimal. Just, hey, I saw the guy this – but, you know. And a uh, guy ended up getting 50 years. And mm. the prosecutor wrote me, you know, like a, a letter to go in my, my personnel jacket for, for my role in that. But that was definitely very rewarding, like a real criminal, hurting people, catch him, you know, not long after and, and send him to jail. That was properly removed from society. Yeah. Yeah. I really felt like, you know, we helped make improvement. I mean, obviously you can't undo that act, but at least now they know that person's in jail and yeah, you know, they're not out there to hurt anybody else. Um, SWAT, that's uh, okay. So. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's probably it. Was um so early on in my career, we had a we had a hostage situation, and um, the guy who later would become my partner was was kind of like he was a very just a larger than life guy, and just like he he's like uh, like I'm sure you've dealt with people like that. Just the guy who just showed me like that's the guy who's just the unofficial. Uh, <laughs> I know who you're thinking of. Yeah, yeah, we're thinking of the yeah, same it's guy. Just yeah. like it just just magnetic dude, extremely competent, like just. And, and just in every aspect. Uh, and it was an HR, and we were getting set up, and he's uh, – and, again, I was new, so I didn't take offense to this, but it's like – Human resources? No, uh, hostage rescue. Okay. It was a hostage oh, rescue. Oh, okay. That Guy puts a had, whole spin on your, your yeah, experience. Yes, okay. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, no well, not we, we know how he feels about paperwork. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, no, this was, this was that. And uh, and we were prepping, and he's like, all right, here's going to be the salt plan. Here's – and giving guys assignments because it was going to be uh, an intel-based. So guys were getting room assignments like, hey, this is more likely. And uh, 
you know, obviously he, he's going to be one of the lead guys going to right direct to threat where they think the hostage is. And uh, he picked another guy who was, uh, you know, he was a Marine, and he picked another guy who was a former Marine. Guys, both combat veterans, both of them. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And yeah, I was newer, so I was towards the back, you know, getting like a more or less safer. I didn't end up not going. The guy came out, so it wasn't that. But I remember thinking, I was like, you know, I, I want to be the guy. Somebody says, hey, that's the guy that I want up front at, you know, with me. And then fast forward, God, five or six years later, and we had another hostage incident. Uh, armed robbery suspect who was also wanted for, for a shooting and, a, and I think a sexual assault. He uh, was being chased by the police, wrecked his car, he went into a restaurant and was holding the patrons hostage. And I got there relatively quickly and same guy who was now my partner by this point and we're setting up for a hostage rescue. And he's like, all right, uh, number two man are gonna be uh, myself and Flynn. And I was like, okay, that's, that's a vote of confidence. Like this is real, guys never the gun, threatening to kill people, holding people against their will. And, and somebody's looking at me and saying, okay, I've got confidence in you to, to handle yourself and handle this appropriately. So that was, that was probably the high point of my career in, in, uh, in SWAT so far. There's been a lot of other cool things, but that's the one that, that means the most to me. Yeah, being someone that can be counted on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've spent a little bit of time. Really yeah. appreciate you sharing some of those personal experiences and stories. And, uh, again, that, that's one of the reasons why uh, why I wanted you with us and, and on the team because you've got a lot to, a lot to offer. And, uh, like I said, you're, you're competent, you're confident, and, uh, and you're humble. Really appreciate that. Thanks. Um, last thing, uh, and I've asked this to uh, to everyone um, the first time on is, what does the future look like for for LTAC? Well, what I see is, is is not just more firearms training, but more just training in general. I mean, we've got the food storage classes, and and really the thing that I'm focusing on. I mean, I know Chris has his his background with the intel and and everything else, and mine is is uh, uh, night vision. I think for the for the uh, for Lodestone uh, with my unit as we continue to progress and modernize uh the thing that i've learned most about is night vision what a huge huge advantage that is whether you're an armed citizen or a police officer or a soldier and so because i handle a lot of the r d for my unit uh being able to help lodestone teach people how to select night vision systems and what to look for and how to set things up and then how to use them i think that's the uh the next big step for us both as a as a company and as a community of responsible armed citizens because I mean, if you're listening to this right now, I guarantee you have more than three AR-15s. <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. You don't have to tell me, but I know you do. And I know you probably have five or six carry handguns. So just ask yourself, how many guns do well, I Well, really I mean, Will Gun Wednesday, right? <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, okay, I, yeah. I, I, I picked by outfit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would like to do a revolver course. I do. I do. As a history nerd and as a police nerd, I do have a, a thing for revolvers, but I, I recognize they, they have limitations. But yeah, with night vision. I guarantee if you looked in your safe and your your man cave, you're probably seeing some stuff like, you know, I really don't use that. How many guns do you really need versus having that night vision and, and good body armor and mm -hmm. that set up to be prepared for, you know, self-defense situations and just general preparedness. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Lodestone Training Consulting Podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. You've been transferred to personnel. To personnel? That's for assholes. <laughs>